0: Wonderful, wonderful singing I'm, I'm sure you've uh, perhaps have picked up on a theme uh, this morning, which is uh, the sovereignty of God and um, we read from isaiah forty six and many of the songs we sang uh, reflected on that sovereign uh, nature of God, his authority over all things and and uh, much of the reason that is because it flows right out of where we have been and are currently in the gospel of John. So I want to invite you to take your Bibles and uh, turn to John chapter 10. Uh, this morning we will be looking at uh, verses 22 to 42. Uh, these verses that we'll read in a minute here mark the end of John's account of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, so for more than three years, Jesus has been going through Israel, he's been preaching the gospel, he's been calling people to repentance, Uh, he's been performing signs and miracles um, in accord with his arrival as the Messiah, Um, and he is presenting himself as the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, John says he is doing that, and he says, Um, this is the whole purpose of the gospel, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have eternal life, and you might have life in his name. And so, uh, among the things Jesus has been proclaiming and uh, teaching is his equality with God and his very deity. John opened with that in John chapter 1. And so, that goes hand in hand with the gospel, is the identity of Jesus as God himself incarnate in the Word made flesh. And so the sad thing that we've been seeing as we've gone through the Gospel of John uh, is that as he went through Israel, John noted in the very beginning of his Gospel that uh, Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Do you remember that in the introduction, his own people being Israel? But he also said, however, that there were those who did receive him of whom John says to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so these last verses in this section of his public ministry in Israel underscore the rejection of Jesus by the very leaders who were supposed to welcome him as the promised Messiah, And so their final rejection ultimately is gonna take place where? At the cross. This is where it's ultimately headed. But in terms of his public ministry, uh, these last verses are a kind of an exclamation point on their ultimate rejection of Jesus. So what have they rejected? Well, so far in this gospel, John has, Jesus has revealed to Israel has been revealed to Israel. I'm just going to list these off. We've already been through them. He's revealed to Israel that he's the light of the world. He's revealed to Israel he's the Lamb of God who takes away sin. He's revealed that he is the Son of God, the Son of Man. He is revealed that he is the fulfillment of Scripture. All that Moses wrote was fulfilled in him. He's called himself the bread of life from heaven. He's called himself the great I Am, God himself. He's uh, called himself the door of the sheep, the good shepherd, the one loved by the Father and equal with the Father. And all of this in what Jesus was proclaiming with his own mouth, right? He accompanied all of it with signs. Signs and miracles and wonders that God appointed to identify Jesus as that promised Messiah. And so each of us that have been here throughout all of these weeks, you too and me have been confronted with all that Jesus said and did in the gospel. And here, Israel has rejected their Messiah. Instead of coming to him, They rejected him. They would nail him to a cross. They would put him to death. And God had said that even that would happen. Even Jesus' rejection by his own people was foreordained and pictured in the Old Testament. So they remained hardened in heart, steadfastly opposed him. They were stubborn, and Stephen calls them stiff-necked in Acts. Why did they... And why do we, and maybe even some of you here, I don't know, why do we continue to hold on to unbelief and reject Jesus? Why do people do that? Why did Israel do that? Despite all that Jesus had said and did, the world holds on stubbornly to unbelief. You and I who have come to faith in Christ and we're here, Did you come to faith in Christ because you were more intelligent than those who don't? Did you come to faith in Christ because you were more spiritual? Did you come to faith in Christ because you were more righteous? Did you come to faith in Christ because you felt that you were more deserving than the other people to actually come and receive Christ? Did you come to Christ because you thought that you are more lovable than other people in the world? I assure you, you're not. <laughs> I'm not more lovable than anyone else. Maybe. I don't know. We'll see. No. Jesus actually gives us, and he gave them the answer in these verses before us. He actually is going to address their stubbornness. Why is it they are remaining in unbelief? And why is it that some actually come to believe? Me and you. How did that happen? How was our stubbornness overcome? And so the, the, the words in Kind of maybe themes, if you want to call them from John 10, that we're reflecting on is, and they're in your notes there stubbornness and sovereignty. Stubbornness and sovereignty. Those are the two words that we will kind of guide us this morning through these verses. But I want you to hear the account from John chapter 10, verse 22 to 42. We will read it and then we will pray. And then we will look at it in some detail. So let's hear the word of God again. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed on him there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the account that you inspired by the Holy Spirit for our brother John to write down for us an account of the life of our Lord Jesus that really highlights uh, the stubbornness of Israel and our own stubbornness, for we know, O God, that we share in that kind of um, hardness of heart at times. But we know that you have overcome our hardness of heart, not because of anything good in us, but because you have called us and chosen us and elected us from before the foundation of the world as your sheep, and we thank you for that, O God. For your mercy and grace towards us who are undeserving we ask now that you would bless your word that we might hear it learn from your word learn more about you draw closer to you and that we might be strengthened by it to press on and continue on in the faith for the honor of your name we ask that you would bless the teaching of your word in christ jesus name amen So John picks up here in John chapter 10 and this is about two months I think have passed since we looked at the Feast of Booths where he heals the man born blind and remember he has the discourse about him being the good shepherd and the reason we think it's about two months later is that John says the Feast of Dedication uh, took place and the Feast of Dedication was during the winter months, right? The Feast of Harvest was during the fall. The Feast of Dedication takes place in the winter months. And wherever Jesus was for those two months, it's not clear where he was and where he was teaching. But we do know that now Jesus is walking, and he's in Jerusalem, and he's walking in the temple again where he frequented, and he's in the colonnade of Solomon. Some say that he was there in the colonnade under Solomon because the winter months were cold, and much like the climate here in the winter months, um, maybe not so much in the last few years, but it's supposed to be the rainy season, right? And so the rainy season is in the winter, and so maybe he's under there being protected from the rain or the wind, uh, protection from the elements of winter. Um, It's also, I read uh, one commentator said, that John's emphasis where he says there in John 10 that it is winter is also symbolic of Israel's spiritual coldness toward Jesus, right? So John is reflecting that it's winter. He's in under the colonnade of, of Solomon. He's in the temple. He's walking, and Israel is very cold toward Jesus. They're very cold and rejecting of their Messiah. So it could be. The Feast of Dedication, then, the Feast of Dedication isn't one like the Feast of Tabernacles where we read about it in the Old Testament. The Feast of Dedication is what you might know as Hanukkah, right? The the Feast of Lights, right? Festival of Lights. Um, A little bit of background on that. In 167 BC, so before Jesus came, Antioch Epiphanes overran Jerusalem and he polluted the temple. He even set up a pagan altar in the temple. He wanted to displace the Jewish altar, the Israel's altar to God, and he wanted to force Jews to worship at this pagan altar, and he even sacrificed a pig on, on the altar, trying to force them. He wanted to basically stamp out Judaism um, if you were caught even with the Old Testament scriptures, it was a capital offense and so you would be put to death. So just imagine here one day, which is like this in other parts of the world, you have your Bible and you're walking in the streets or you're reading it with your family and someone fall, falls upon you and they find that you're reading the scriptures and then he want, it's a capital offense and so you're gonna be put to death, okay? That's happened in the history of the church, by the way. Now we should be thankful we have the freedom to be in God's word and to carry it, but you never know what's gonna happen in the future. God knows, but this is just a reminder that uh, we should cherish the word of God that we do have and be thankful for for that freedom. In any case, he wants to get rid of Judaism. And so the Jews in 164 BC, so about three years later, they were led by Judas Maccabeus, okay? Judas Maccabeus also, I read, had the nickname, if you will, the hammer, Judas the hammer. And I thought that's really that's a really cool name, right? And so he basically is used to, um, they, through his leadership, they recapture Jerusalem, and then they rededicate the temple that had been desecrated. And so on the 25th of Kislev, so that's sometime between November and December, this celebration took place. And so the celebration is a celebration of eight days long, and it was decreed after they recaptured Jerusalem and rededicated the temple that they should do this every single year. And so it started on the 25th of Kislev and it lasted eight days. And the reason it became known also as the Festival of Lights is because um, uh, one commentary I read, D.A. Carson, um, who I quote from often, He said, uh, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, the lighting of lamps and candles in Jewish homes were deployed as symbols because the right to worship, and this is a quote from Josephus, appeared to us at a time when we hardly dared hope for it. And so he's saying they were in a dark time, they wanted to worship and have that right to worship, and so when they were at their lowest, um, they were delivered, and so they would light these lights in the midst uh, as a reminder of that deliverance. So this is not a biblical commanded feast, but it is part of the Jewish history. And so here's Jesus, and he's walking in the colonnade, or in the temple, under the colonnade, and these Jewish people, Israelites, surround Jesus. They, They encircle him. They just picture it that way. They're coming around him. And here's what they say. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, you could see that. You could think of it as a polite question to Jesus, kind of seeking clarity, asking Jesus, as if they want to settle it once and for all so that they can actually worship him. Hey, Jesus, you know what? We've seen you've done all of these things. Look, if you're the Christ, can you just come out and tell us plainly because we really want to worship you. You could see it in that sense, but I don't think that's the sense is meant here. I think what seems more likely, based off of all we've seen in John and even in the immediate context, seems more likely that they are wanting to entrap him again. What they really want him to do is they want him to come out right out in the open, plainly, and say, I am the Messiah. Now, if you've been with us through John, you'll you'll realize that Jesus did not once come out and say he was the Messiah to Israel. He did to the Samaritan woman, remember? Tell me, are you the Christ? He says, I am the one who's speaking to you. The other gospels show us that to his inner disciples, the closest, he did reveal himself to them as the Messiah, like to Peter. But he never came out right out openly and said to Israel, I am the Messiah. So they wanted him to just say it. And they wanted him to say it so that they could attack him and arrest him, okay? So if he had said, I am the Messiah to Israel, do you remember what we saw in John 6, 15? What did they do? What did they want to do with Jesus after he fed the 5,000? They wanted to take him and make him king right away. Because they misunderstood what the Messiah, who he was supposed to be and what he came to do. They were always thinking in earthly terms. They were always thinking that God would come, the Messiah would come, and save them from their political oppression. That the Messiah would come and deliver them from Roman rule. That the Messiah would come and give them back their land. And so every time they were thinking about the Messiah, Israel was always thinking on these earthly terms. That's what they were expecting, and that's what they were desiring, and so they needed this kind of deliverance, but that's clearly not what Jesus came to deliver from, is it? Jesus came to deliver sinners, even Israel, Gentile alike, Jew and Gentile alike. He came to save us from our sin, and he came to save us from our sin enslavement to sin and our enslavement to Satan and, and, and our guilt and the fact that we're under God's judgment. He came as a Messiah to wash away our sins. He, he didn't come to give us a political kingdom on this earth. That kingdom will come and be consummated one day in the future. But now Jesus came in order to bring salvation. And furthermore, if he told them he was the Messiah, do you think they would have believed him? They probably would have thought, you're crazy. You're a madman. Here's a humble carpenter. How do you think you're going to be a Judas Maccabeus for us? You, a humble carpenter, are you going to be able to deliver us from this political oppression? So you see Jesus in his wisdom his divine wisdom, he never comes out and says it directly to them. He says it to others, but not to them. At the same time, though, and I think this is what John's getting at, it wasn't as if Jesus kept the truth from them, did he? When you look at all that Jesus did, all that he said, all the scriptures he fulfilled, everything he said about himself, from the testimony of John the Baptist, to turning water into wine, to cleansing the temple, the authority of his teaching, the healings of the sick and the paralyzed and the blind, the feeding of the 5,000 from two fish and two barley loaves, and all the other miracles that Jesus did in, in the other Gospels, which John says could not even be contained had he written, written them all down, everything that Jesus did, did it not plainly testify to the fact that Jesus is the promised Messiah? Of course it did. He didn't come out and say it, but he clearly told them everything that they needed to hear about who he was But the fact is, the stubbornness of their unbelief and the hardness of their heart prevailed. Each of us, at some point, were apart from Christ. Maybe you're still apart from Christ. And each of us were stubborn to the truth regarding Jesus. That's our sin nature We don't want to believe. We don't want to submit. We we don't want to obey God and his law. We don't want to admit that we're sinners. We don't even want to admit that we need a savior in our sinful nature because pride has filled our hearts. And so we refused to come to Jesus. At some point in our life, we were against him. And at some point in our lives, as believers, that stubbornness did no, no longer prevailed, but it was overcome by a force and a power much greater than the rebellion and the stubbornness. But for them, at this point, they couldn't hear his voice. They did not know him, they would not follow him. And they had no desire to understand and their hearts were filled with pride and stubbornness. They didn't think they needed a spiritual savior. It's no wonder that Jesus says, when he responds to them, Jesus answered them, I told you, I told you who I am, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. In other words, Jesus is saying, I have openly showed you, and I have been plain about it, Jesus says. At the end of the day, the issue for them was not a lack of information about Jesus, It was not because Jesus was hiding something from them. It was not because Jesus was keeping signs from them. You sometimes hear people say that, you know what, if Jesus wants me to come to him, why doesn't he come right down now and give me a sign from heaven? Have you ever witnessed to someone who said that? Right? They said, if God's true, then come down right now and give me a sign and then I'll believe in Jesus. This is what they say. And Jesus is saying here, you want another sign? I have given you all the signs that are necessary, and you're still not coming. So do you think if Jesus comes and gives you a special sign, even today, that somehow that's going to overcome your rebellion? Or do you think that what you'll do is you'll just make another excuse? You'll just, you'll just continue on in the stubbornness? You'll just explain it away? And so Jesus says, you know what, I I have showed you. You've had the scriptures, you've had my sign, you've had the testimony of John the Baptist, but you simply refuse to believe. And that really is the depth of their sin, and it's the depth of all sinners. In fact, you can turn there if you want. I'm just going to read from Romans 3, verse 10 to 18, because this is... This is the depth of our sin. This is the depth of our stubbornness as Paul describes it in Romans 3. He says, start in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Better off than Gentiles. No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. What does that look like? It is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That was hard to swallow for me. Is it hard to swallow for you? It's hard to swallow the fact that apart from a marvelous, gracious work of God, that apart from his sovereign working hand, which he told Nicodemus, you must be born again by the Spirit, that we are like this you don't understand, you don't know, especially you who are young, you're filled with a lot of energy and you're filled with a lot of pride because you think you know. You think you have the answers and you have it together and the older you get, the more that you're gonna realize is that this really is a description of who I am. I don't understand, I don't know apart from God, I can't do enough good to get into God's kingdom. This is the sin nature, and it had to be overcome. It had to be transformed and changed, and this is what Jesus is going to get to here in the next verse 26. From the human perspective of human responsibility... That nature that we have doesn't excuse us of our sin. We're responsible for all of it. And we're guilty for it, even for the unbelief. These Jews didn't believe because they deliberately rejected the truth. But notice how Jesus, from the divine perspective, evaluates their unbelief. He says in verse 26, You do not believe. Why? Because you are not of my sheep. Do you see what he says? He doesn't say, You are not my sheep because you do not believe. Let me say that again. He does not say, You are not my sheep because you do not believe. He says the opposite. He says, the reason you do not believe is because you are not of my sheep. What a statement. In in, in other words, a sinner, he's saying, does not become a sheep by believing in Jesus. Now that's a message that's hard for people to understand because our, I don't know, our cultural environment sometimes puts becoming a Christian on the Christian. If you want to be a Christian, come and accept Jesus. And from the human perspective, that's true, isn't it? From the human perspective, we place our faith in God and we're responsible for our sin and we believe and we come to Jesus. But from the divine perspective, Jesus says, if you do not believe, you're not believing because you are not actually among my sheep. Because my sheep, Jesus says, they hear my voice and they come to me and they follow me. You need to be redeemed and chosen and elect by God as one of his sheep if you are going to ever respond and come to him. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. How does that tension strike you? does that, is that somewhat bothersome? You know, it could be for people. Human responsibility, sovereignty of God. And you can feel a tension there because from our perspective, we're like, well, what are you saying? Am, am, am I, maybe, maybe I should just sin and live however I want because I'm not God's sheep. And so I'm going to go on and live then apart from God. And that's not at all what, what Jesus is, is saying. He, he's not saying you're not responsible for your sin. He's not saying you have an excuse because you're not chosen by God. They're very much responsible. They're very much going to be held accountable. But Jesus is saying that he came to save his own people. He came to save a certain people. And he already talked about this in John 6, 37. They don't believe because they've not been given to him by the Father. Remember that? God has not drawn them in chapter 6, verse 44 God has not granted it to them in chapter 6, verse 65. So he's really saying the same thing here. Now, we ought to rest in that truth. We ought to rest in the truth that God is sovereign and we are responsible rather than try to explain away the sovereignty of God and salvation. We, need, we don't need to rescue God from our lack of understanding of how those work together. Does it make sense? We just need to accept that and submit to it and, and just trust that Jesus knows exactly what he's saying here. And so this truth should lead us to praise God for his sovereign grace and salvation because it assures us of this, that the salvation of God through Jesus is complete and final. If salvation depended on us working with God, we would never be sure of being saved, would we? If salvation was a synergistic effort, could you ever know if you are really saved? If salvation depended on you and God working together, would you ever know that you have eternal life? The answer, I'll just give it to you, is no. Is it God's fault or is it yours? If you think that way, it's yours. God will be faithful to his promises, but if he depends on us sinners maintaining something, we would never know we are going to be saved. We would always fall short. And so this is why Jesus says in verse 28 to 29 For his sheep he says I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand my Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand I and the Father are one You see what he's saying I am sovereign over who is saved, and I am sovereign over keeping that salvation for them. Jesus is sovereign over both ends of it. And that for us, beloved, should be a huge comfort. That it doesn't depend on us to be saved, it depends on Christ. There's no ambiguity here in Jesus' statement. The sheep who belong to Jesus, who follow Jesus, who are known by Jesus, who were sovereignly given to Jesus by the Father, who are his sheep, are in some apparent danger because someone might try to snatch them away from salvation. But Jesus says at the end of verse 28, verse 29, he says, No one... Not thieves or robbers, not hired hands, not hungry wolves, not other people, not Satan, not even we ourselves. No one can snatch them from Jesus's, from the Father's sovereign hands, from Jesus' sovereign hands. I and the Father are one, he says. That should comfort us. We should rest in that. We should be encouraged by that. And I've used this example before, and I'll use it again because it's the only example that I, it's one I like and I can think of, but when my kids were little, I would put a piece of candy in my hand, and I would hold it, and they were probably like two or three and I would tell them, if you can open my hand, you can have it. And so I would hold it, and they would jump on top of me, and they would pry at my pinky, and they pry at my index finger, and they're trying so hard to open my hand, but they, they can't do it. Even all three of them, right? If they tickled me, I would, I'd let go. But, but they, can't, they can't open it because I'm just way too strong. Now, this is multiplied ad infinite with God the Father. Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. He is greater and more powerful than anything in the universe. And he says, no one can snatch them from mine. I and the Father are one. And so we are being held and preserved by Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the triune God working to secure us and to seal us and to keep us. And there really is no more secure place to be. The same sovereign God who elected us is the same sovereign God who keeps us. And you'll notice, what else does he give them? He says, I give to them eternal life. Eternal means what? Forever. Eternal. If eternal life could be lost, would it be eternal? It wouldn't be eternal. It would be a temporary life. So he gives us eternal life and we will never lose it. This immediate possession of eternal life enables Jesus to say back in John 10 verse 28 and they will never what perish if you are in Christ you've come to the messiah you've placed your faith in him you're trusting him you're following him you're obeying him as his sheep do if you love Christ and you listen to his word and you listen to his voice and and he has washed you of your sin, and he has redeemed you, and he has removed your transgressions from you as far as the east is from the west, if, if your sins were crucified on the cross with him and you were buried with him and risen again with him, Jesus says, you're his sheep, and he says, you will never perish. Is that good news? That, there is no better news. If you fail in some area in life, you won't perish. If you give in to a sin and a temptation, God forbid, and you've done something against his law that you feel extremely guilty for, praise God for that guilt, but you will not perish. If you look to Christ, if you look to Christ, you can be forgiven. If you look anywhere else, you can't have eternal life. And so Jesus says, you will never perish. And so they clearly understood what Jesus was claiming here. They asked for a clear statement as to whether or not Jesus was the Messiah, and Jesus gave them even far more. Jesus said, I and the Father are one, not one in, in, uh, not one in person. They're not the same person. The Father and the Son are distinct, but he's saying they are one in their action, in their will, in their, in their purpose. The, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are unified in that purpose. They're they're one God, but they're three persons distinct. And so, Jesus, when He says, I and the Father are one, is not saying, I and the Father are one person. And we know that because Jesus prays to the Father, right? Jesus is blessed by the Father when He's baptized, and you see them interacting. They're two different persons, okay, within the Godhead. And so, And so uh, they understood what Jesus was saying. And so what did they do? They picked up stones to stone him. They picked up stones to kill him. Because again, Jesus made it clear that he's equal with the Father. And so Jesus asks them same question you can be asked this morning. I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? In other words, what exactly do you want to kill me for? And they answered him, It's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Yeah, he sure did, didn't he? He put himself out there right before them. He said, This is who I am. And they wanted to kill him their stubbornness continued to fight against God, but their minds were made up and their love of sin held them captive to Satan, death, and judgment. That's what MacArthur said that. Uh, it's a good quote. Their minds were made up and their love of sin held them captive to Satan, death, and judgment. So verse 34, Jesus answered them because they're accusing him of blasphemy. Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him of whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? In other words, Jesus is, is saying, listen, the scriptures say and even calls you sinners gods, but not the God, right? But refers to them as God's lower Gs in the Psalm 82. He says, "But here I am. You're accusing me of blasphemy when I'm the one consecrated by the Father and sent by the Father, and I say I'm the son of God and now you call and say I'm blaspheming." That's basically his argument here. He he's saying, "You haven't thought this through very much. You haven't thought this through very much." And so he brings them back to the basics and he challenges them to abandon their biased and stubborn hearts. And he says, weigh the evidence, weigh the evidence, verse 37, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. In other words, if what you see in Scripture, if what you see me doing, if what you hear me saying does not not convey that these are divine works from the Father, then don't believe me. And this is what he says to us. You know what? Listen about Jesus. And if you don't think that the Jesus we've seen is Jesus from heaven, he says, then fine, don't believe me. But if what you see about me and what I'm doing, if you see that, wait, who can raise the dead? Who can heal the blind? Who can heal the sick? Who can raise himself from the dead? Who can do that? If you see who can do that and you conclude rightly that only God can do that, then believe on him. There's no reason to reject him any longer. He is who he said he is. Humbly come before him. Follow him. Submit to him. Place your faith in him and you will be saved. And so they instead sought to arrest him, verse 39, and of course he escaped from their clutches because God had ordained his death by the cross, so it wasn't his time. Glorious conclusion to the end of Jesus' public ministry, and you'll notice how John brings us full circle where he began, Jesus went back across the Jordan to the east side, away from Jerusalem in Judea, and he says to the place where John had been baptizing at first, so in the early days, and there he remained. So full circle, this is where we began. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. May our faith be... Confirmed and strengthened this morning in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is who he said he is. He is the sovereign God, the good shepherd, and we, his sheep, come to him. And if you are not there with him yet, he invites you to come. Come to him, receive him, place your faith in him, and you will receive eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word again, and we thank you for the truth that is contained in it For the reminder of our stubbornness, for the reminder of our sin, for the reminder that we, like Israel, here of old in this passage, was stubborn against you and opposed you, we know that we could not have come out of that stubbornness or darkness on our own. We know that if you had left us to ourselves, we most certainly would have perished, We know that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But we thank you that you did a work in us by causing us to be born again, by giving us new hearts by your spirit, by regenerating us and giving us new life and drawing us to yourself to believe. We know that we are incapable except for your grace, and so we praise you for that grace and kindness. We thank you that in sovereignly saving us, that you have also sovereignly purposed to save us. That, Lord Jesus, you have given us eternal life that will never, ever perish, and we are held firmly and securely in your hands. And so we honor you for that, and we thank you. We pray, O God, that there would be, as Dean prayed earlier, a revival in Our nation and in our country, in our state, in our city, that as the gospel is faithfully proclaimed from pulpits and on street corners and on one-to-one evangelism, that you would just begin to draw your sheep unto yourself. We don't know who they are, Father. You do, and we know that you have called us to preach the gospel, so help us to do that and to be bold in doing it, that you might receive the glory and the praise as you save men and women. Pour out your spirit among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.